Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 74 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. First, I wanted to take a moment and thank those of you guys who wrote us an honest review in iTunes and Stitchers. It's wonderful to hear your feedback and your thoughts. And also, it helps this show to reach a broader audience. And you guys are now mostly know that how it's just hard to find quality sex education material. And I appreciate it if you help me with my mission of providing this education to as many people as possible. So if you're one of our listeners that's been listening to this show for a while, you probably heard my interview with Dr. Albert Wong. Dr. Wong is a friend and colleague of mine, and we had him on this show during episode one, and he talked about sex and mindfulness. And that episode has been one of the most downloaded episodes of this show, And in past 18, 19 months, I got so many emails from you guys wanting to learn more about mindfulness and how you can incorporate it as a way to improve your sexual health. If you're one of those people that are interested to learn more about application of mindfulness for sexual health, you're in luck because our guest today is Dr. Lori Broto. As many of you guys might know, Dr. Bruto is one of the main researchers in the field of sex research, and she, in past several years and more than a decade, she's been studying mindfulness and its impact on our sexuality. Dr. Lori Bruto is a clinical psychologist, a sex researcher, and the author of Better Sex Through Mindfulness, How Women Can Cultivate Desire a member of various sexuality organizations. She's also Canada's research chair in women's sexual health and an associate editor for Archives of Sexual Behaviors. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Lori Bruto. Welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to have Dr. Lori Broto on the show today. Dr. Broto, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. And it's just so wonderful to have someone who did research and clinical work around sex therapy in this show. And you are, my understanding is you're the person for mindfulness and sexuality. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very kind, but thank you. <laughs> Whatever research, like material I read is like your researches and like, I, I'm, we're so lucky to have you in the field. Thank you so much. So before we started this interview, I shared with our listeners an introduction about your new book, Better Sex Through Mindfulness, which I thought was fantastic, full of great information. And in the book, you talked about some of the current research around how many women who are struggling with sexual dysfunctions and you talk about different expressions and I found the number kind of surprising. So tell us what are the, some of the findings you have on that area? 
Yeah. So there, you know, since Viagra was approved in the United States back in 1998, there's been a lot of interest in really trying to quantify how common sexual difficulties are for men, but also for women. And so since that time, there have been a number of very large population-based studies, the most recent of which was uh, came from the, the United Kingdom, where around 15,000 British residents were interviewed uh, in depth about uh, a list of different sexual concerns that they may have experienced over the last year. And what that study found was that when we look at women alone, about 40% of the women reported that over the last year, they had at least one significant sexual concern. And uh, uh, when you look at women who had at least two of them, it, it was also high. So about one in five women had at least two sexual concerns that lasted three months or more over the last year. And so by that, we mean low desire, lack of arousal, problems with orgasm, lack of feeling pleasure during sex, and, and, uh, and also d- difficulties with physical comfort or pain. So really, really common. And we know low desire is the most common of the sexual difficulties. Right. And I I was reading your book and you were talking about your research that you had this woman coming in and they were talking about not feeling anything in their genitals. And when you were doing the research, there was blood flow, there was some physiological responses and it wasn't registering, which I thought was fantastic and fascinating. Right. right. And in your book, you talk about stress level and how that impacts our sexuality. Can you tell us a little bit about that part? Sure. So, you know, the, the, the causes of sexual difficulties are multiple, and it's really hard to know within any one woman what was the issue, the single issue that contributed most to her sexual concerns. But when we look across studies, uh, across hundreds of thousands of women, we know that psychological factors are, are pretty key, and in particular, stress itself. So in our society... Uh, we know that stress levels are increasing. They're, they're in fact, some would say they're, that they're at, at pandemic levels of stress. There's a Stress in America survey that's released every year, and it finds that most North Americans will say that they live day to day with some level of stress. And stress can be experienced both in your in your mind, where you might say, "Oh, I feel stressed. I feel burdened. I feel like there's too much to do. I can't get an, anything done." But then there's also the more physiological aspects of stress, and by that we mean the release of the stress hormone cortisol. And cortisol, in in brief spurts or in in a sort of acute amounts can be good for the body, it can help regulate the body, but at chronic levels, it can it can wreak havoc. And we know that chronic levels of stress can interfere with many different parts of our physical function as well as our sexual function. So yeah, stress can be a major culprit of, of sexual concerns. And I was reading about the dual model that you talked about in the book, you mentioned it as well, and how you have we have the accelerators and brakes for our sexuality. And I usually see and often see women who are coming into my practice are talking about, I try all this number of stimulants, like candles, lingerie, but I cannot get into (laughs) becoming like sexual or increasing my desire and like, because we are, the brakes are on all the time. And I think you definitely talk about in the book that one of the key components of helping us with improving our sexual health is kind of reducing the stress level. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. And we, you know, we've we've now have quite an impressive body of research that shows us um, when women even come into an experimental lab setting that if you give them some kind of a stress task, something that's mentally stressful, it interferes with their sexual response. And and complementarily, we know that uh, treatments that directly address stress give women coping skills for identifying when they are stressed and and reducing their high baseline levels of stress can be quite important for improving their sexual response. Right. And also, one thing I sometimes I hear from my clients, they're telling me I was stressed out, I don't know, five years ago when I met my husband. So now why right now the stress is a key component that's getting the yeah. way. What is your response to those like women? Yeah. So, you know, there's always a bit of a, what we call kind of colloquially a honeymoon period at the start right. of a relationship. <laughs> and sometimes the novelty of being in a new relationship and the the spontaneous feelings of desire can mitigate those other factors like stress. But as as time wears on and as novelty decreases and familiarity increases and routine sets in, that's when we might start to see the effects of underlying stress or mood or anxiety or other factors that uh, that that again will will directly impact a woman's sexual response. Right. And you're right. With novelty, it's easier for people to kind of stay focused in the moment. Yeah. And as the yeah. novelty wears off, it's just like, as you were talking about in the book, I have clients are talking about, oh, I was, I caught myself in the midst of sex. I was doing grocery lists, the list of grocery right. or thinking about my agenda tomorrow, which is, exactly. can be very disappointing for them. Exactly. That's, that's, that's so true. And women are often embarrassed to admit that this happens. Um, and yet when you start to ask women, a, a variety of women, does this ever happen to you? Um, so many of them, in fact, I've, I have probably yet to find a woman who says, no, that has never happened. So the mind wanders, I think by nature, our, our minds are curious and they move to novel in different places. Um, and they, our minds do that during sexual activity again uh, as well. Right. And one thing is fantastic. So it seems like majority of your work is around mindfulness and you've been this doing this work for a while. I know mindfulness now is very trendy and uh, many people are using it, but it seems like you've been utilizing it, practicing it for a while. So tell us, how did you get into the research around sexuality and mindfulness? What about it was interesting for you? Yeah, so I had been doing um, sex research as a graduate student for for quite some time, and I was, you know, mostly interested when I started out. In fact, I started out as an animal researcher looking at animal models of sexual dysfunction. So we looked at the effects of antidepressants on sexual function. We also looked at the effects of stress. So we would stress those poor little rats, and then we would measure their sexual response and and uh, then I moved over to doing human research after uh, a large study was published in 1999, which found that 40% of, of women have sexual difficulty. So I became really interested in the causes of, of sexual difficulty in, in women. And then it was in 2002 when I was a fellow at the University of Washington in Seattle where I uh, became trained in a particular psychological technique or method called dialectical behavior therapy, which is often used for people who have, who engage in cutting behavior or parasuicidal behaviors. And one of the core components of dialectical behavior therapy is mindfulness. And so what I learned 
was that mindfulness was a way of helping these individuals who really couldn't couldn't tolerate their feelings of anxiety and sadness and the intensity of their their emotions and their relationships but mindfulness really taught them that that they could stay in the present moment and and it was safe that it was when they began to think about the future or when they began to ruminate over past events that that's when when they became very distressed and suicidal and so I, I learned mindfulness. I also started my own mindfulness practice. I sort of immersed myself in the the theory and the practice of mindfulness. And then I, I think I had maybe a bit of a light bulb moment where I, I thought, you know, the concerns expressed by these individuals with borderline personality are, you know, somewhat, somewhat similar to what I'm hearing among women with sexual difficulties who say, you know, I, I don't feel connected. I, I'm constantly living in the future or I'm constantly ruminating in the past. I don't feel what's going on. I don't feel present. So we, uh, together with my supervisor, we thought, you know, let's try this and see what happens. So we recruited a sample of women who were survivors of uh, gynecologic cancer, who had had a type of surgery that removed the upper part of the vagina, the cervix and the uterus, so a radical hysterectomy which left them with, you know, quite significant um, lack of feeling and lack of pleasure. So brought them into my office one by one, and we breathed together, and we paid attention to uh, body sensations together. And we were quite uh, surprised to note that these women started to notice again. They started to feel sexual sensations uh, that they thought were otherwise gone forever. And so then we recruited a larger group, and then we replicated that study. And, and so then fast forward 15 years, and we've now amassed quite uh, an impressive amount of, of research that has shown the benefits of these practices in, in a large variety of different groups of women with sexual concerns. And I think, I believe it's fascinating and wonderful that you, you introduced a, meta, a method or you incorporated that in the work of sex therapy, something that's as simple as mindfulness. You know, yeah. with medication, they have side effects, there are different yeah. options that people kind of like experiment with alternative medicine. And something as beneficial and as easy as mindfulness can have this a profound impact on people's sexuality. So I think that yeah. is just such a fantastic thing to hear. And for our listeners, I, some of our listeners are therapists, but some of them are people who they don't necessarily have as much experience in the field of psychotherapy. So tell us, how do you define mindfulness? Yeah, so by mindfulness, I'm I'm referring to kind of contemporary notions that have been forwarded by folks like John Kabat-Zinn and Zindel Siegel and and others, and it's really a present moment, non-judgmental awareness, um, and it's done so in a in a compassionate way. So it's about paying attention to sensations continually redirecting the mind on those sensations, wh whatever the type of sensation that it is that we're focusing on. But very importantly, it's how we do that. And we do it kindly to ourselves. We do it compassionately to ourselves. We're not berating ourselves for doing it wrong or for getting distracted tens of, of uh, tens or, or does or even hundreds of times during a practice. Mm -hmm. And I know in the book, again, you talked about like it was different chapters and how 
mindfulness was helpful for particular kind of sexual challenges. So I highly, highly recommend people to check it out. But also kind of kind of a general way, how how do you think the mindfulness work to improve our sexual functioning? So this is something that our research has really increasingly focused on the last few years because as I've mentioned already, we've we know that mindfulness is helpful for sexual response, but we, what we don't know totally yet is how does it do it? So we've been coming up with, you know, a laundry list of different possible ways that it might be working and measuring some of those in our research and what we're finding is that one of the ways mindfulness works is through improving mood. And this isn't uh, a big surprise because mindfulness, of course, has been used for preventing uh, relapse of depression for quite some time. But it, it's what we're finding is that in addition to sexual desire improving, women's mood is improving or their self-report symptoms of depression are decreasing. And that's probably contributing to their improvements of desire. We also are finding that uh, women's interoceptive awareness is increasing. What I mean by that is interoception is this kind of general sense of being aware of what's happening inside the body, like being aware of your heart rate or being aware of, let's say, ovulation or subtle changes in blood pressure. And we've found that interoception is increasing and then that's, and then that's in part driving the increase in desire. We also know, I mentioned stress earlier, that that's another mechanism. So by decreasing self-reports of stress and probably by improving some of the regulation of the stress response system through mindfulness, that that's probably also contributing to their improvements of, of, uh, of sexual desire. So there's probably other ways as well. And in fact, we're just about to wrap up another five-year study where we're comparing eight weeks of mindfulness to eight weeks of educational sex therapy. And, and in addition to looking at the effectiveness of these two treatments against each other, we're very interested in some of the underlying mechanisms. So it's possible that in, in a year from now, if we chat again, I'll have a better answer to this question. I love that. <laughs> and I appreciate that you're doing that yeah. research because I feel it's very impactful and we need more information about that. So that's yeah. wonderful that you're doing that research. And I'm very curious to see whether psychoeducation was better yeah, <laughs> or only exactly. the mindfulness. That would be very profound as well. Uh, so, you know, usually I'm in private practice and when I recommend mindfulness, kind of breathing exercises, specifically mindfulness to my clients, mm -hmm. I get some kind of resistance. People get shocked yeah. about how would that be related to my concern. So yeah. how do you engage, like encourage people to kind of practice this? What are some of specifically around when there is a sexual challenges? Yeah. So, you know, there's no way to get around the practice, right? In order to really make those concrete changes in the brain, we, we do have to put the practice in. And, um, you know, I and others refer to this as the on the pillow practice. And, and that is really important. We don't, there's no shortcut to doing that. And so often I, I'll work with clients to find, you know, in, in the spirit of being kind to yourself, is there a time of the day that you're more likely to be able to do this? Can we play with the length of the meditation so that maybe you do three 10-minute meditations spread throughout the day as opposed to a single 30-minute meditation? Can we experiment also with what you're paying attention to while you're doing the practice? So um, some people are just more drawn to the, a body scan and, and others are more drawn to, say, uh, mindful walking or mindful listening or mindful eating. 
And then in addition to this formal on the pillow practice, there's the very, very important informal practice. And this is now that you've kind of strengthened that muscle of mindfulness, can you start to bring this to many different parts of your life? So while you're eating a meal, can you spend the first 10 minutes of it just eating mindfully? And that means slowing down, paying attention to the feeling of your utensil in your hand, savoring the sensations in your mouth before you chew, feeling what it feels like to swallow, uh, and so on and so on. And so um, the women who participate in our groups, while while they all start with that formal on-the-pillow practice, by about four weeks into it, they begin to gradually incorporate these skills when they're being sexual, whether that means they're being sexual on their own through their own kind of self-touch and exploration and or with a partner. And now, now that you were talking about different kind of duration, I was kind of curious to see, is there any minimum amount that people need to kind of practice it on a daily basis in order to see some results? Yeah, it's a great question. My own research hasn't empirically examined that, but other mindfulness researchers have started to look at that question of, you know, what's that sweet spot of how much I need to practice to really show some benefits. Um, And some of that research shows that uh, for some reason, 13 minutes a day is... uh, is is sufficient to produce some of the same kind of benefits to mood and stress as those longer 30 and 40 minute practices are. But I mean, I, I would argue that probably more frequent practice is more beneficial than uh, longer but infrequent practice. So if, if, if participants are able to do a bit of a practice every day and on those days where they might have a little bit more time to do a longer one, but on the the days where they have less time, they can do something that's five minutes. Then um, our participants have told us that that is that still allows them to uh, benefit from the practices in terms of their sexual response. And I know as I was telling that, I, I figured out it was kind of contradicting <laughs> the whole purpose. Right. If you right. want to say like shortening it as as short as possible, I guess the idea is to be mindful in all like minutes of the line, like day, if possible. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, if I'm yeah. saying, oh, uh, how, how, what is the minimum <laughs> that right. I need to do it? Right. Then it wouldn't be necessarily as impactful. So the other response that I get from my clients, our listeners, is that they're saying that we're good with doing mindfulness kind of exercises on our own. I can do it in the room. I would do guided meditation with audios or different kinds, as you mentioned, with walking, different variation. But I don't know what to, how can I incorporate that to when I'm intimate with another person? Yeah, I mean, so there's, there's, first, there's the intellectual question, which is, you know, uh, it doesn't make sense to me how paying attention to eating a raisin is going to translate to better connections sexually. That's the kind of intellectual question. And then there's the experiential component, which is try it and and you'll see for yourself. And in fact, in our groups, when we do our first meditation, which is an eating meditation with a raisin, we don't at any point uh, explain to the women how paying attention to the raisin in this way is going to 
uh, translate over to their sexuality. And, and I'm always struck, and it's been 15 years of doing this now, that the women make the connection on their own. When they eat that raisin slowly and deliberately and suddenly notice colors and shapes and uh, sensations and sounds of the raisin that they hadn't noticed before, they immediately uh, have their own light bulb moment where they say, oh my gosh, if I can experience this with a single raisin just by paying attention, imagine what would happen if I took that same quality of non-judgmental awareness and brought it to sex. So we don't even have to do that connection. They, they make that connection on their own. Right. If when people get into the practice of mindfulness meditation, it seems like they they on their own can notice the benefits and changes as well. So one right. one other thing that I, I hear at times is that people say, you know, throughout the years, uh, when I'm intimate, when I'm having sex with another person, I I haven't been aroused, but what's going on in the room. I go to my fantasies and that's how I climax. That's how I experience arousal. And there are, there is some fear that what if I, when I'm present, I wouldn't get aroused. Do you hear that sometimes? So it's, um, you know, it, it's interesting because fantasy uh, can certainly be a great tool for cultivating sexual sensations in, in women, but fantasy is, is not mindfulness, right? Fantasy is, is moving to another location that one is creating and creating all the intricate parts of. So it's very intentional and deliberate and mindfulness is, is about just noticing whatever is, is there. So, um, I, I think it's really important that when we give instructions to our clients and to others, that we're very clear that, Mindfulness is not about creating something. It's not about deliberately trying to become relaxed. It's not about going somewhere else. It's about being right there. Now, having said that, in our groups that we've we've run for years, and I also describe this exercise in, in the book, Better Sex Through Mindfulness, we've found a lot of benefit in combining those two things. So I'll describe what I mean by that. So we might encourage women to engage in a sexual fantasy for say five or 10 minutes and feel those sexual sensations that happen when they do have a fantasy and then stop the fantasy and then carry out a body scan right after that. And what women will tell us is that by first eliciting those sexual sensations through a fantasy, it gives them even more to pay attention to during their mindfulness practice. So that might be one creative way of combining fantasy and mindfulness. But again, we don't want to confuse the instructions of the two because they're really quite separate. Right. And again, it seems like mindfulness is showing up for what it is in the room, in the current moment, and fantasy is just kind of at times escaping or disconnecting and going somewhere else. Right. And it seems like it's it's ideal if if you can kind of like be present and like experience the present during like what's going on in the room during the sex. But it seems yeah. like uh, based on this exercise that you have some uh, recommendation guidance on how people can transition from that. Like yes. from being in fantasy world to being present with their partner. 
Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, for a lot of women, they want to work out the the kinks on this, so to speak, on their own before they bring this into partnered sexual interactions. And, and in in our groups, that's exactly what we do. And, and also that can be really helpful for women who are not in a relationship, who still want to practice mindfulness and and, and benefit from mindfulness skills on their sexual response. So by, by doing this on their own, whether it is through a fantasy to elicit sensations, we might also encourage women, and we have done this, to use erotica or use a vibrator. Again, a very deliberate way of eliciting arousal and then practicing mindfulness right after that. Right. And one other question I have is around when sex is painful. So when it's right. painful and people... Right try to uh, practice mindfulness, that can be very challenging. What are some of your recommendations around that particular issue? Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I work in a department of gynecology. That's where my, my appointment is. And so, um, I spend, uh, a lot of time working with women with chronic genital pain or vulvodynia, and that's described as, as chronic pain at, uh, the entrance of the vagina, uh, that can be very, very distressing for women. And over time, we've actually applied mindfulness to those groups of women because mindfulness, of course, as, as we know, has been used for chronic pain in general for the last 40 years. In fact, that was the first population that mindfulness was used with, was with chronic pain patients who were not responding to other conventional treatments. And so we we actually got funding from uh, Canadian Institutes of Health Research to do a study where we compared eight weeks of mindfulness to eight weeks of cognitive behavioral therapy for women with chronic genital pain. And we analyzed the findings last year, and, and they're being published right now. And, and quite uh, amazingly, what we found is that women in the mindfulness group, they actually had more of a reduction in their pain sensations than women in the cognitive behavioral therapy group. And, you know, these are these are incredible findings because for for a very, very long time, genital pain was kind of the bane of gynecologist existence because there are so few effective treatments. Most of the topical treatments don't work at all. In fact, some of them could actually be doing more harm than good, such as cort- uh, uh, cortisone creams, et cetera. And yet, if we treat genital pain like like any chronic pain condition, then it makes sense how mindfulness, which is about really tuning into the sensation itself, but letting go of the storyline, letting go of the, you know, all the sadness and the anxiety and the catastrophizing and the why me and why won't I ever be normal? And also even not even calling it pain, but just rather tuning into what does, what do the sensations feel like if we were to not use the word pain itself. So really, really quite remarkable and important findings. And in fact, when we uh, followed women for a year after they finished the the eight-week mindfulness intervention, they continued to show benefits. So they showed even more improvements when we reassessed them a year later, which again, was very, very reassuring to us. Right. And again, if you're thinking about going back to what we were talking about earlier, that like you're just focusing on your breathing, your present, and that's the intervention you're working on versus different shots, medical procedures that can have different like hosts of side effects. Of course, at times they might be necessary, but if there is a way you can manage it, the pain that you have through something as simple as mindfulness, that's very profound and I think amazing. 
Yeah, yeah, I I think so too. It's been great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I just thank you for all the wonderful research you're doing. So if our listeners uh, want to kind of start with incorporating mindfulness in their uh, sexual functioning, in their sexuality, what would be the first step that you recommend them to do? So, you know, I'm definitely a fan of the formal mindfulness groups that are available in meditation centers or uh, many community groups even even hold eight-week mindfulness introduction to mindfulness or mindfulness-based stress reduction. So I'm a really big fan of those because it's a way to fully immerse yourself if this is brand new to you. If that's not possible, there are online programs, online mindfulness programs. I would probably recommend going through one of the certified uh, programs through uh, the Center for Mindfulness, which is in California, as well as in, in Boston and Massachusetts. There's also some great apps that uh, are available. Like, uh, in fact, just last week, Apple announced its top apps of the year and its, its top app for the smartphone, for the iPhone, was actually a mindfulness app called Calm. Oh, I um, love that one. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's fantastic. I, I love Calm as well. So there's apps like that. There's Headspace. There's Happify. So, you know, and, and of course, the on the pillow practice. So committing some time every day or at least most days of the week that you'll you'll put the, the time in for the practice. That's really my biggest recommendation. Thank you for sharing all this information, great content. And again, you're doing wonderful work and we are very appreciative of all of your work and knowledge and contribution you made into this field. So I bet many of our listeners, they would want to learn more about you, your book. What would be the best way of getting in touch with you and learn about your publication? Uh, so there's lots of different ways of getting in touch with me. So, um, I'm, I'm active on social media and Twitter. So my Twitter handle is Dr. Lori Brado. Uh, so that's Dr. Lori Brado. My, my research website is www.bradolab.com can also be found on email through that website. And then of course there's the book, which, which again, summarizes the last 15 years of the research and provides a lot of the exercises that we tested within our research with women. And, and the book is called Better Sex Through Mindfulness. And I highly recommend the book. I leave a link to all the website that you mentioned in the show notes. So if you guys are interested, please go ahead and check that out. And Dr. Broto, it was an honor to have you on the show. And thank you so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. It's, it's, thank you so much for, for giving me the space and the time to talk about such an important topic. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Lori Bruto, and I highly recommend her book. And in her book, she talks about how people like historically medical field use different interventions and medication and surgeries on helping women improve their sexual desire and also different kinds of sexual challenges that they have. And how interestingly seems like the way that consistently we know, at least based on the scientific research, that women can address these issues with no side effect or no lasting complications would be through mindfulness. So I highly recommend you guys to check out her book and also use the apps that she mentioned. I, I personally use Calm and Headspace, but there are a bunch of them out there. I leave some of the information in the show notes, a link to the other websites. And also I wanted to hear what are the other topics that you guys are interested in? 
So you can send me your questions, specific questions you have around sexuality. Uh, we can do an episode around your specific challenge. We already had two of those. Or we can talk about a general topic that you're interested in like mindfulness and sexuality. So I'm looking forward to hear from you. If you have a specific question, you can email me at drmoali at sexologypodcast.com. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.